Welcome to another episode of the Lessons Learned podcast series created by the Impulse Network. My name is Benedict and I manage the Impulse Network. We are a Swiss, not-for-profit, student-run organization with its roots at the University of St. Gallen and with a mission to deliver new impulses for the future of the sports industry. Over the course of this series, we will be asking a collection of top executives from the sports industry to share one learning from their past and one question that defines the future of the industry. For more information, be sure to check out this description and our website. Just a few days ago, our founder Clemens and I had the chance to sit down with Carsten Kerl, CEO of Sportradar, to talk about his recent IPO, trends in the sports industry, and his lessons learned as an entrepreneur. Thank you for the great conversation and your time. All right. Um, thank you for being here, Carsten. Um, we are, just to give you a little bit of a background, we are asking leaders from the sports industry and beyond of their lessons learned from, of course, the pandemic, but also sort of the past 22 years uh, of this of this century to, so far. And um, yeah, thank you for being here today and we're excited for the conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, so let's start with the first question. As said, which personal lesson from the last years, not only the COVID pandemic, would you like to share with us today? Of course, I can share with you a lot of the COVID lessons, which I have learned, but um, personal lesson is, um, is very simple. If I'm looking to my business life, um, I think uh, my personal lesson is um, one single person can not really move a company in the direction where we had been moving. Um, so I would always say if you are building some business, if you are trying to expand this globally, it's always the team, it's always the people which are behind this. That's what you're going to need to understand, how to mix the people in the right way, how to give them the right vision, but also how to find the right mix to fulfill your mission. So that would be my personal lesson from it. It's always a team exercise. All right. And um, in that work and with your team, you work with many organizations and federations in the US and Europe. Um, comparing both sports systems um, or maybe the, the industries behind it, what, what are your main differences that you can oh, identify? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So these are two fundamental different systems. <clears throat> fundamental different. Um, let's start with uh, the US. Um, not so difficult from the number of leagues. We are speaking here about <clears throat> 350 million people, something. So quite comparable in the size to Europe, <clears throat> but it's only one nation, one country, 50 states. Um, but um, at least they have one currency and they speak one language, similar. Um, and from a sports perspective, they only have two, four big sport leagues. And let's call the two colleges also big. So we speak about six sports. Let's look next, um, NASCAR, golf, and those sports is a minor piece. Um, so we're speaking basketball, American football, baseball, and hockey. Um, and if you look to the structure of the big four leagues, um, there are usually around about 30 teams in, in all those leagues. And, um, and they are commercially organized. They have a commercial owner. Mostly they have one owner. Usually this is uh, some mad billionaire who, <clears throat> yeah, in some way they are all mad, um, in a positive way mostly, um, but um, they're very engaged on a commercial level. So what they try to do is they try to find for their passion um, the best way 
how to commercialize this. And that's fundamentally different to the system in Europe. So in the United States, if you want to do business with the league, um, you have a very professional organization on their side. I'm not saying that European leagues are not professional, but they are streamlined since many, many years in this way. And, um, and the opposite side of the league organization is a commercial owner, the team owner. And, um, and they have very clear vision where that should go. They have a very clear vision that they want to make money with this property. And that's fundamentally different if we are looking to Europe. So we still have in many countries the debate about 51% ownership. What does that mean? What does that mean for the fans? How is the administration done? So the way how the US is driving this from a commercial and ownership perspective is very different. And uh, I think that's what we see currently in many leagues around the world. Um, they are more adopting a model that there is a commercial ownership, um, which is uh, for the good or for the bad, a change which happens around the world. The US is undoubtedly paving that way. All right. Um, and maybe one, one follow-up question to that. If you can identify the, let's say, biggest challenge in each system. So from your perspective, what is the biggest challenge that, let's say, the US needs to solve in their system and that Europe needs to solve in, in this system? Well, it's a question if we will have a coexistence of <clears throat> both of those systems in the future, let's say in 10 years and 20 years. Um, like I just told you, we, I think, see very clear tendencies with EPL in, in England, for example, uh, that there is a commercial ownership. And this has changed a lot of things. It also has changed the value and the monetarization in the sport. If we are looking now to uh, what the EPL can commercialize from a rights perspective and comparing this to the German Bundesliga, for example, that gives from this perspective a disadvantage to the Bundesliga. And we're discussing around those topics since many, many years. So we see that there is more flow into the direction of the US model, I would say. Um, I think the big tension comes where it goes into grassroots sports and uh, how you support young players, how you are controlling the integrity of the sport, that the commercial influence is not going to the foundation of the sport, which is always, there is a fair play, there is a team event, I want to give chances to the talent and I want to promote the talent, not brutally only the talent, which has a chance to make it up to the highest level, it is really the grassroots system here. I think this is where the Europeans, in my mind, are significantly better. What I saw in college in the US, it's a very fragmented landscape. We have a lot of college organizations there, and they are very, very different. And the funding from these colleges is very, very different. So I would say from a grassroots perspective and, and how to get uh, fans or young players engaged with the sport, the Europeans have, in my mind, uh, a more advanced system, looking to how you can explore it commercially, uh, undoubtedly at a professional level, that will go into the direction of the US, yes. Right, and last question to both of the systems. Um, you're working with both parties, as said. Is there any differences in your, let's say, day-to-day -day operations that uh, that you can point out for for both systems that are that are important? No, I would, I would say at the end it's always personal relation. You're speaking um, to the people on the league or federation side frequently. 
Um, you try to understand their needs and, and I'm living sport, I love sport, I love every sport. So speaking to those people which are deep in the sport is always a pleasure and fun. Um, looking, looking from an engagement level, of course we, we are now a listed company in the US. So I'm caring a lot about the US leagues and our partnerships there, which is very normal because um, a piece of our value is the US and the market grows there. We are very, very good in Europe and the rest of the world and we are continuing to drive this. But uh, for this year, for sure, I have a bigger focus on the United States. So COVID-19 has heavily impacted the sports industry, um, obviously, and the recovery is expected to last uh, at least a couple of years. Um, what do you believe will be the main growth drivers um, during this recovery and beyond mm. for the sports system? Yeah, that's so different with what lens I'm looking at. I think um, from, uh, from a sport perspective, um, that's a huge challenge. So all of a sudden, with um, the pandemic event, um, you had um, some fundamentals on, on the main pillars of the revenue, which changed a lot. So ticketing is something very obvious. Um, if there are no uh, fans in the stadium, you have no income from ticketing, um, which is, which is um, something hard to swallow for sport. Um, next one is the engagement of the fans, um, which is monetized with merchandising and sponsoring. Uh, both uh, categories for many sports have suffered. Um, and the last one is the rights, where my observation is that uh, the domestic rights, they have not really changed. Um, there's a huge interest from sport fans to watch the sport, even if you can't go to the stadium. Um, Internationally, the international rights, um, they have suffered for many of the sports from a European perspective. By the way, that's fundamentally different in the US. According to our observations, they have been not struggling with sponsorship and merchandising. Yes, with ticketing, um, no with rights for both domestic and international. That's for, for the big leagues. So that's the perspective of sport. Sport needs to look very carefully and use this as an opportunity, which I think is the real threat. So what we saw with many federations and leagues is um, everybody has been used, this is growing, growing, growing. Every year it's growing. And um, every year salaries are growing. Every year the revenues from the transfers is growing. Um, and, um, and sport has adapted very well in my mind to this and saying, okay, we get every year more income. So we have every year higher spends in the player salaries and the complete administration. And uh, that has worked out. Now um, we have a gap which is widening because we see less revenues. And we see in the best case that um, sport and leagues have managed to stabilize somehow their costs on a very high plateau. Um, and here, You're going to need to use, in my mind, this as an opportunity. There is a lot of things in the digital space which can be improved. I think that uh, sport fans younger than 40 years age are consuming sport completely different than the older generation. For the good or for the bad, these are two different or three different generations. And you're going to need to have products for them. And you as sport, you need to have an answer. How should that look like? Should it be, for example, live highlights, should those high, live highlights being compiled, personalized for used needs, because I understand what is your need, and I might even forecast live what is now 
going to be very hot and what is going to be very interesting for you in one sport and I'm pushing you this information may be aggregated with some data points and maybe some things which are also of your interest um, that you can consume it much easier <clears throat> like probably people from the younger generation want to consume it and which doesn't mean that the big screen is that and the sport federations are calculating a lot with this but I think um, this pandemic event can be used <clears throat> to to really see it as an opportunity and not only as a threat, but undoubtedly it has woken up uh, many of the leagues around the world and say, okay, we're going to need to look how do we close our revenue gap, which is existing. Yes. And recent studies also suggest that, for example, especially for European football, fans move a little bit away from the sports and get more, were more disconnected during the pandemic. Do you also see potential risks during the uh, recovery process now? Yeah, that goes <clears throat> well if we're speaking about this, it's always difficult yeah. uh, to validate without the studies. But my guess would be that the younger fans have uh, less interest in the sports. Um, that would be at least my guess. And saying, okay, Yes, you need to create the digital products because leagues and sport federations did a major mistake in not going deep into this clustering and only relying on a broadcaster who is running the traditional model is not the answer for this. So the leagues generally, and that's what I see in the US as a trend, they are looking very much into the direct to consumer. What can I do? How can I go into this channel? that I'm getting my sport and, and, um, and the passion for the sport to the young sport fans and that is direct to consumer solutions. Technology plays a big piece of this, OTT is a password, data enrichment, AI, visualization, all those kind of things are things which you're going to need to do and if you ask me this question I would say yes this is the area where there is a lot of potential and a good opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so what role can Sportrader play in this? Exactly this. <laughs> we, we have the technology, we have the data, we hope that we have the understanding of the global marketplace and um, we can help and support uh, sport, the leagues and all the <clears throat> responsible companies around this um, to empower them that they use it as an opportunity. That's how we see it. So are you going to expand your service portfolio even more? Constantly. <clears throat> But we are in the space of sport, so we have uh, three pillars. One is sport solution. This, are, this is technology for leagues and teams and federations. Um, so computer vision is a buzzword here, deep data collection, visualizations, um, sport analytics, video coaching applications. That's the first pillar. The second is sports betting, um, where we are globally the market leader. This goes more and more into risk management, trading models, AI plays a huge piece in this. And the third one is sport fan and engagement. Um, and these are the solutions for the sport fan, clustering them according to their needs. And it's kind of you giving a customized user journey because you know the sport fan. Getting all those three united, that's the mission and vision of SportRadar. Mm -hmm. So you went public uh, with SportRadar last year uh, in the middle of the pandemic. Um, What is your takeaway in this, yeah, roughly first year? Oh, um, totally that right. was a ride for us, and um, <clears throat> and I probably did the most expensive um, IPO in the last year uh, because we worked here on on two different ways. First, we started with a spec, and then we ended up with a normal IPO. So I got the full load from both worlds. Um, That was also expensive for all the advisors in between, but also for the management 
um, when it comes to time and the spend what we have to do here. So I think I did more than 150 or 160 meeting sessions with analysts and potential investors. Um, um, and that goes quite deep sometimes and you're going to need to be prepared for this um, to make it successful. Uh, so for us, the IPO was a major distraction from the operational business. And, um, and I think the biggest achievement was we managed to deliver on the operational level, over-deliver our targets and complete the IPO. And for this there, you're going to need to have some luck. So um, it's market timing. I would say now <clears throat> an IPO with our setup <clears throat> on the NASDAQ it's very, very, very difficult. I would say that's nearly impossible because the market has changed. The perception of the investors have changed in the last five months. Um, and, um, and the investor now is looking not only to a story that you're saying in 10 years, the world is nice and everything is beautiful. Uh, they want to see today that um, you are delivering profits and the hyper growth. Um, and that perception has changed. And uh, that's something for every tech company which is listed in the US. Um, that's a challenge for everybody, which is in my mind very good because your business model must work. You must generate profits and you can't only live on process. Mm -hmm. And so your personal learning, um, coming back to that question, what was it, your main personal learning? The main personal learning is, uh, I'm always repeating this in such interviews and saying, first, you must have a lot of luck. Mm -hmm. um, timing must fit. Um, and you can't influence all of this. So um, I have to say again, I had a lot of luck last year. We had the right timing for the IPO. We did the right thing with the IPO, comparing it to a spec. And, um, and then you're gonna need to work hard on your destiny. So um, that's, um, that's as simple as it is. So um, you need to work consistent and hard and you must have the right timing for whatever you do. And, um, on the long term, you will be successful with this. On the short term, there might be some hiccups up and downs. So, after we win, Sportrada is already the second company you founded and sort of took public. Um, that makes you one of the most successful entrepreneurs in Switzerland and in Europe. Um, what is your secret to that success? <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot of luck. <laughs> but, um, Look, um, I think there is not really a secret. Um, what I'm doing is what I really love. I love sports. Um, I love to work with people. I love the global business. And, um, and I think that's very, very important for whatever you're doing in your job. You must somehow find a way to identify yourself. For me, this is perfect because I live my passion. I love to be an entrepreneur. I love sports and I love technology. So combining this together um, is is for me uh, it's a perfect setup. So and and then whatever you try to reach is um, depending on somehow the time, my good luck or some or or timing. Um, but but I think that that was um, why I could manage to be successful and. Um, and I think that's possible in many other sectors and disciplines if you have a passion for what you're doing, if you're persistent on this, um, if you accept that sometimes things are more a marathon and not a sprint, and um, if you follow that plot consistently. I think um, 
that um, that was for me the key to reach what I have reached. And I think there are many more entrepreneurs in the world which have reached much more than me. Right. And um, it would be easy to believe that that sort of only went went upwards uh, during during the years and uh, during your career. But uh, did you have any major setbacks that you would like to share? And of course, um, how did you fix them? <laughs> I had so many setbacks in my <laughs> career, but um, look, I'm um, I'm maybe a bit unusual from uh, from the perspective of an entrepreneur. I was never employed by somebody, um, which is a different difference to many others. So I have not this experience. How does it feel if you're employed from someone? It was always my company or the company which I had together with partners where I had been working for. So that's, um, that's something where I'm, I'm probably quite unique in this perspective. Um, and, and then it's about um, setbacks. Everybody has this. And, um, and my biggest learning here was, um, and I had um, some people might say disasters in my commercial life, where I really had been thinking about how can I pay my employees? What can I do? And, and I had for half a year nearly no salary in such periods. Um, and I survived with it. Um, don't ask me how, but I survived. Um, and, um, and I think everybody has to go through this. Not everything is working well if you're an entrepreneur. And, um, and my learning there was I, I realized that uh, whenever I have a passion for something, I'm gonna need to follow a calculation and saying if this and this and this happens, then I will react in this and that way. If you are following blindly only your passion, you will ruin yourself for sure, which is also not a problem. You might ruin yourself once or twice and a third time it works, but this is really a hard learning. So the better way is to define this is the red line. If something which you have calculated is not paying off, then you're going to need to react. Um, if you go over the red line, and then simple let it run, that is a high risk that you crush yourself. Um, like I said, it's not, um, it's not the end of the world if you crush yourself from a business perspective, not from a human being perspective. Um, but it, the better learning is um, you're gonna implement milestones um, which you monitor, and if you don't reach these milestones, then find a different way. Don't blindly stay on the things where you are passionate about, which I think is the most difficult one. And I had to learn it on the hard way, and like you just said, it's not always working successful. There are also periods where it's not successful. Great. Um, now we would say that you probably live the dream of most entrepreneurs. I mean, Michael Jordan, Mark Cuban are among your investors. Um, looking back at these last years, is there any is there sort of your most exciting moment or can you share a moment that maybe you haven't spoken that much about in public? Is there any moment from, from the career, sort of a high that uh, you would like to share? Look, I just thinking about this. So I shared so many business moments with uh, the public that there are no big secrets. So I was super excited with the IPO standing with Jordan up there uh, on NASDAQ seeing skyscraper banners of your company shooting 60 meters high on Times Square in your face of super exciting moments. If you, let's speak about moments where um, 
which I never shared with the public. So these are moments when we are we are doing every year for all the offices <clears throat> charities which are around sport or people in locations um, where we have offices. And there was a moment four years ago when we had a, a golf tournament um, in Catholic Manor, which uh, <clears throat> which is um, which is in England. Some people might say Wales is not England, but um, but um, around this we we did a charity with some friends, which I have invited there um, for for people which are in a wheelchair and shop before dying young people. Um, so the category here was I think 25 years or younger, they are in a hospice. And the evening which I have enjoyed with them, um, with their wheelchairs, and they made a picture for me, which I still have in my house. Um, that was um, one of the moments where I was thinking, wow, what I'm doing can be really helpful for people. And that's the reason why we do this more and more in the group, the more successful I am, the more I'm looking to those things, uh, but more silently. So it's the first time that I shared this. But if you ask me about moments which I haven't shared, these are moments which are really creating value for me. Um, you can help um, people and, and make a joyful time um, with your success, which I think is very, very important for everybody who had success. Right. Um, in another interview, you sort of speak about your competitiveness and everything that you do, right? Not just business. Is that your most important asset? <laughs> Of course, I play to win. So I, <clears throat> but um, from a, I would not say competitiveness has a lot of aspects. It's a um, team sport, and uh, how can you make the team competitive? But uh, it's more about um, how can you stay on top of the developments, and how do you change yourself all the time, and fundamentally ask yourself, I'm. Am I on the right way? Do I have to adapt my model? Do I have to change things? And, um, and um, I think uh, a good word which describes it is you have to be curious every day. Every day when you're waking up, you have to be curious about what has changed. What can I do better? How can I improve it? And um, how can I get this message to the team? And how can we be together competitive enough that we are, we are going to win this game? So I would say that's the mix. Um, stay curious, um, looking open eyes to every development which is there. Adapt yourself. You're going to need to adapt yourself every time. And our world is changing so quickly that this is now nearly necessary on a daily basis. And then, of course, being competitive and learning from the best, um, which have been so competitive. And that's a plot which um, I had a discussion with Michael John about this. And uh, for him, it was uh, his passion of saying, I want to be the best in the world. I want to lead this team and I want to learn every day and I want to improve every day. And he, from a training perspective, he was the player who trained most in the Bulls team by far. So that's what you can learn. And, um, and for me, being curious, learning about technology, learning about sport, learning about applications, learning about the global market, that's what we try to do here. Right. And then when sort of hiring young people, um, are you looking for this ability to learn or what, what are you looking for in sort of the, the next generation when... Uh, yeah, when this I is one of the most difficult things. So. <clears throat> 
the company is uh, is created from the people. So you're going to need to have uh, the right mix and the level of passion, but the level of knowledge and the talent which is there. Um, there are a lot of things which you can read in CVs and which you can find out in interviews. At the end, it is always uh, the testing by how does that work in the job? How does that work in the team? How does that work on, on this location? And to judge on this, there is, for me personally, a lot of <clears throat> gut feelings in there. Of course, we have um, a professional people department. They're giving me advices, they're doing research, they're doing interviews. If it goes on talent, it's really say, you do this interview and then um, you have all the facts, but at the end, it's a bit of judgment. Do you think that this is fitting together? So um, that's at least <clears throat> how I tried to do it. It was not so bad in the past, but it's a race for talent. And, um, and there are a lot of characteristics. The company must do a lot with the branding, must be attractive for the top talents. It is a race for talent around the globe. And there are a lot of good and big companies. Salary is one component, but having this working environment, I think that's the most important one. Right. And last but not least, uh, do you have a piece of advice for the next generation on what matters most when building two unicorns? <laughs> luck. <laughs> <laughs> you see, <laughs> simply think you have luck and things are good. No, being persistent. You have your opinion. Um, you're going to need to follow this opinion and you're going to need to work damn hard on it. Um, but you must make a plan and say, what is my plan B if that doesn't work? Don't go blindly all in with everything. Um, I did this and I can tell you this is painful um, if it doesn't work. Maybe that's a good learning. Um, my learning from it is put in the KPI and say, okay, there is a moment in time Uh, when you are changing and switching, uh, up until then, you must work very persistent on your vision. All right. Thank you very much for your insights. Thank you very much for the conversation. Um, we really enjoyed it. And yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. What a great and insightful conversation. We would like to thank Mr. Curl for his time today. We look forward to our next episodes coming up. Be sure to follow us on social media to not miss any updates.